Chapter 11 The Black Order The pain was monumental. Its body was pulped in several places, and the lifeblood it had been granted pumped from a dozen wounds. Still, it moved as fast as it could in its ship, desperate to reach Thanos before the end of its miserable life. It could barely speak, but the dexterous fingers of the remaining hand on its right side tapped in communications as the ship streaked across the space between worlds, once more heading home to Titan. The landing was not a good one, and the ship and its occupant both suffered severe damage. By the time it regained consciousness, for it had certainly faded into the gray for a time, servants of Thanos were peeling it from the wreckage and speaking of how badly it looked for the Outrider. Foul look at this, one said. It's all spoiled and missing part. Rotten, not long for the living. Come on, then. Best hurry. Everyone will be waiting. It ignored them. Thanos was all that mattered. The dreams of a name were nothing now but fading glories. It needed to reach its master to prove its worth and to give him the information he required. Nothing else was of consequence. Still, it was honored to find all five of the dreadlords surrounding it as it was carried to the throne. Thanos was a god, to be sure, and these five were his high priests. S-S-S-S, the outrider said through pain. Yes, creature, so you signaled on your return, Corvus Glaive replied. And your message was not ignored. The Black Order has assembled. Proxima Midnight, lean and lovely, her face half-hidden behind a mantle that sported ceremonial horns. Black Dwarf, a beast as large as Thanos himself, covered in hard plates of natural armor and adorned with horns and barbs. The Ebony Maw, a male with pale skin and wide eyes that saw much more than most. And Supergiant, who towered over even the great Thanos. With Glaive, they ruled beside the god the Outrider worshipped. They were great and powerful leaders. They were named. Finally, they arrived. Thanos sat upon his throne and looked at the Outrider as it lay dying. He did not speak, but Corvus Glaive did, with a voice that sounded like death. You have done well. You have served Thanos faithfully, and your god is pleased. Glaive looked upon its wretched form, his gaze without pity. Pity was saved for the weak, and the Outrider, even dying, had never been weak. Tell us where. Uh, Adelan, the Outrider said. Earth, the inhuman king... He hides what Thanos seeks. The words were pain. The words were glory to the great god Thanos. So be it, Glaive responded. You have earned your reward, Outrider. If you wish it, you may have it now. I do. I wish it. He did not face Corvus Glaive, however, but instead turned its head to Thanos, who whispered softly a name only meant for the Outrider's ears. It learned its name at the exact moment Corvus Glaive drove a blade through the chambers of its heart, granting the reward of death. Thanos looked down upon the dead Outrider. Death was a release, he knew, and a gift. Corvus Glaive held out the bloodied tip of his weapon as if making another offering. This is how it is supposed to be, he said. Does this please you, master? No, Thanos sneered. Earth would please me. Several of his followers muttered their displeasure at the notion. He had heard it all before. Earth? Madness. On Earth, even the very best plans fail and fade. On Earth, even the darkest nights always yield to day. Last stop for the foolish. A waste of time and energies best spent elsewhere. Thanos said nothing. 
but marked which of the fools dared challenge his opinion. Glaive spoke for him, turning to the naysayers and hissing. Yes, we all know of Earth, he said. But this is an Earth more favorable than accustomed. An Earth changed. We have word of discord in the house of the Inhumans. We have word that the mutants fight among themselves. A schism. Thanos leaned forward, placing his elbows on his knees as he looked out at the crowd. He knew what Glaive was about to reveal, and he wanted to see their faces when they understood what was said. Brothers, sisters, Glaive said, we have even finer news than that. Sharpen your teeth and prepare to consume a great meal. Earth, you see, is without avengers. As he spoke, he gestured to a figure who stood nearby, eyes glowing, wearing a hat that bore a single acronym. S-W-O-R-D Thanos smiled as the news sank into the cloudy minds of even the weakest of his followers. Corvus Glaive continued. The Avengers have gone to the stars to warn others of impending invasion and doom. We are offered a most sumptuous feast indeed. Medusa moved into the rooms where Maximus did his experiments, her impossibly long red hair swirling this way and that, writhing and rippling as if with a life of its own. She looked over the different devices he was creating, and her stomach grew cold with dread. He was behaving himself, but Maximus the Mad was as insane as the title implied. His brilliance held no concern at all about right or wrong. She dreaded the thought of the conversation she was about to have with her husband, regardless of how one-sided the words might be. As she approached, she heard Maximus speaking. "'I have made a masterpiece,' the madman said to her husband, sounding gleeful. "'Well, masterpieces, actually.' I've been busy. Waiting, Medusa held back, silently. The housing for the Terrigen crystals has been reinforced, he continued. I'm compressing light, heat, and all the fundamental forces of creation in the heart of the machine. We don't want any of the sacred mist to escape onto the city. Random Terrigenesis is no way to keep a secret, is it? He chuckled to himself. I know, I know, he said. You're interested in my other project, he gestured. Very well, follow me. Maximus moved into another chamber, where he did most of his work. A sphere was suspended from the high ceiling. The massive thing was at least sixty feet in diameter, designed in overlapping layers. Toward the bottom there was an opening that allowed them to enter the device. Building a portal wasn't much of a problem, he said, leading his brother inside, Maintaining a local field is harder than you'd think, but it's no difficulty for a... His voice faded away, but Medusa already knew what was inside the device. Maximus had worked at finding a dimension where sounds were rendered without pitch. If he'd succeeded, then there was a place where her husband could speak without physical consequence. He would be able to say the words, and others would hear them without being destroyed by the power of his vocal cords. She again heard Maximus and the sound of his voice grew louder as they exited the device. Free to have your super-secret meetings that I'm not supposed to know about, but do because I put a tracker in lockjaw. Then he stopped, the moment he caught sight of her standing in the doorway. Uh-oh, he said. Trouble. Gesturing dramatically, he continued. What did you say? Run for your life, Maximus? One of us has to live, and I'd rather it be you? He looked back. Understood, brother. You're a good man. Don't worry, I'll make a fantastic king. Ignoring him, she stepped close to her beloved, her hair wrapping around him, caressing his body in an intimacy none but they could understand. Husband? Then Maximus was smiling again, bright and warm and friendly. I'll just leave you two alone here. You can talk, you know, with actual words and not just facial expressions. The look she cast his way had the man very nearly running to depart. Again, she spoke to Black Bolt. We need to talk. 
They entered the sphere and found themselves in a simulation, a green forest with soft grass and lush undergrowth. Medusa, my wife, he said very softly. Consider what we have built together, my king, she responded. Yet you have been hiding your thoughts from me, and I do not like it. We are less because of it. She moved closer to him, and then leaned in until her forehead touched his. Aren't we? Perhaps, he said, and his voice was like music to her. But if I had to choose between complete honesty and the loss of this place, or denying us this place and maintaining the memory of it, then I choose the latter. You can understand that, can't you, my love? No. No, I cannot. Indeed, his words were enigmatic, and she didn't like the sense of distance between them. We are one, but we are nothing. Black Bolt sighed, a sound that was so far removed from most of what she had experienced in her life that it gave her goosebumps. For years they had spoken without words. She could not say for certain whether this was an improvement, but she had her doubts. Tell me what you are hiding, she said. Closing his eyes for a moment, he concentrated. He held out his hands, and above each palm created an image of the Terrigen crystals. This is how the end begins. What we are. What we will be. No! Medusa shook her head, backing away from him. Her mind spun at the thought of what he was saying, what he was implying. No! What have you done? There were generations, hundreds of generations of inhumans on the planet. Some believed their people had been... Deluded over the centuries, contaminated with human DNA. But if that was true, so too had the humans been contaminated with inhuman DNA. It was a strong possibility. What have you done? She repeated. Horror bloomed in her heart, then turned into anger. Black Bolt gave no answer, here in this place where his words could be spoken safely. That silence was answer enough. She lashed out, slapping his jaw roughly enough to turn his head. Without another word, she left the chamber where she could speak with her husband, with her king. Somewhere, likely not far away, Maximus would be smirking and laughing to himself. The city of the dead was silent. Wakanda was silent. The night had grown long and the moon faded on the horizon, though the stars shone brightly enough. Namer was not welcome in Wakanda, but the necropolis was not Wakanda. It was a shadow place for the dead, and apparently where the dethroned kings of Wakanda liked to wander and contemplate their world. He did not wait long before the panther showed himself. Is there something I can help you with, T'Challa? You do not come here to watch the skies, Namor, the former king replied. You come here because you wish to converse with me, and ask me questions. You should ask them. Your sister is considering my offer, the Atlantean said, which is good. I expect I have you to thank for that, so thank you. T'Challa looked at him for a long moment, studying his face. There is nothing to thank me for, Neymar. Neymar snorted and crossed his heavy arms, I have a hard time believing Queen Shuri would consider my offer if someone had not argued it on my behalf. Are you saying you did not? No, T'Challa replied. I did. Then what are you saying? He frowned. T'Challa was often an open and even friendly man, but when he wanted to hide his feelings, he was a stone wall. This thing you started, Neymar, this thing between you and I, it is poison for our nations. T'Challa looked at him for a moment and then studied the stars. We are kings, or at least in my case have been kings, two giants battling each other, unaware of the world, the lives we risk destroying. T'Challa looked to Namor again. You were right, he continued. 
our people, should be spared. But that is not the world. We know the people are always the first to pay a much too costly price. I regret that. Neymar peered closely into the inscrutable face of his one-time friend. What have you done? What have I done? Nothing. I was ignored. And you were lied to. He looked so very sad, which was what started the fear inside Neymar. There will be no peace, Neymar. Today will ensure it. What have you done? Neymar asked again, his voice rising. They seemed to come from the night itself, manifesting from the shadows, the Dora Malache, the Royal Wakandan Guard, five of them, all armed and facing Neymar, prepared, or so they likely thought, to defend T'Challa from his wrath. We have done what giants do, Neymar, the Black Panther said. I am sorry for your loss. Why do you tell me this? Neymar stepped closer to the fallen king of Wakanda, yet the man held his ground. T'Challa was nowhere near as strong as he was, but were they to fight, the Submariner doubted it would be an easy win. More important, he did not want a fight. He wanted peace. You should go home and help your people however you can, T'Challa said. They will need their king. He did not lash out. Much as he wanted to, he did not strike T'Challa down. When he spoke, however, he could not conceal his fury. Not that he wanted to do so. This is not done, T'Challa. With that, he launched himself into the air, soaring away into the night, toward the ocean. His domain, his kingdom, his anger competed with dread. T'Challa shook his head. It never is. Chapter 12 Casualties of War Reed Richards was one of the most impressive intellects on Earth. A member of the Avengers and the family of adventurers known as the Fantastic Four, he held degrees in engineering, mathematics, and physics. Figure the last month has been an anomaly, Richards said as they walked through Avengers Tower. And we're going to average three to four incursions a month. At that rate, Reed, there's no guarantee that Stark began. Ahem. Richards wasn't accustomed to being interrupted. He continued as if it hadn't occurred. At that rate, factoring in an exponential growth curve, before he could continue, or Stark could interrupt him again, the alarm on the console of an aircraft hangar at the Avengers headquarters lit up like the proverbial Christmas tree. What's that? he said. Instantly, Stark's armored fingers darted across the controls. Proximity alert, he said, their debate forgotten. Tied into Sword's early warning system. But that means... His voice trailed off as the huge metal doors of the landing bay slid to each side, revealing the skies over Manhattan. The tower was high enough to see over the neighboring skyscrapers, giving the two of them a spectacular view of the invading forces that were dropping from above. Dozens were already visible, and there was no telling how many were behind them. My God, Stark said. The vessels were massive and growing larger as they descended. They dropped low, many of them skirting along the streets of the city, close to the ground. Grimly, Richards noted they were vaguely familiar in shape. The technology was advanced well beyond what Earth employed, as a rule. Titan, he said. That's Titan tech. Stark agreed. This isn't going to go well, he said. If that's Titan, we're probably dealing with Thanos. As he spoke, Richards felt a shiver run through him that had nothing to do with the temperature. Thanos was a viable threat at the best of times, but he never brought an invading force to the planet before. Not on this level, at least. This was just New York City, and there were enough ships descending to blot out most of the skies. What might there be elsewhere? Just how massive is this? There were no Avengers to assemble. They were going to need to look elsewhere for allies. Stark moved quickly to a separate room in the command center and began activating the batteries of defense cannons located throughout his building. Reed moved to help him and followed his instructions. This was no time for competition. Within a matter of minutes, they were as ready as they could be to defend Avengers Tower. The rest of the city, 
enjoyed no such luxuries. In Atlantis, bodies littered the undersea landscape, blood leaking into the surrounding waters and dissipating on the currents. The Wakandans had attacked, and while the Atlanteans had repelled the enemy soldiers, many were dead on both sides, and just as many were injured. They would need time to recover and regroup. The ships that dropped down on the underwater kingdom knifed through the water. They were designed for extreme pressure. They caught the Atlanteans unaware, and the damage was catastrophic. Towering buildings that had withstood war, the ravages of time, and the forces of nature were destroyed in moments. The deep waters slowed the collapse of structures, but did nothing to stop the damage to those within the buildings. Namor was a warrior and a king, a formidable fighter in his own right. He had led armies that fought nations and had brought large portions of the surface world to a standstill. Even hurt, Atlantis was a force with which to be reckoned. The defeat was as brutal as it was fast. The war machines of Titan settled beneath the waves on the ruins of a city already damaged before they arrived, and now very nearly level. A hatch opened in the foremost vessel, and Proxima Midnight emerged, her footsteps kicking up silt that quickly drifted away. The heavy water pressure and the lack of oxygen affected her not at all. She was followed by a small contingent of soldiers. Beside her, the leader of the shock troops looked around, frowning. Did Thanos send others here first? Proxima shook her head. No, this was someone else. Her gaze locked on Namor, who held the body of a young woman, a casualty of combat. I came here seeking a man of consequence, Proxima continued, capable of wielding an infinity gem. Instead, I find a broken prince, ruler of a broken city. She addressed the crouching figure directly. There is no gem here. No one who had such power would have allowed this to happen. Isn't that so, prince? Be warned. Nemo returned her gaze, his eyes narrowed with suppressed fury. I will suffer no fools this day. Who are you, and what do you want? I am Proxima Midnight, of the Black Order, she replied. Second to Lord Thanos, of Titan, and I was sent here to kill you. I see, however, that I am too late. You are already dead but just haven't realized it yet. Namor laid down the body of his fallen subject and rose. She watched him, her eyes offering no expression. They were white and seemed to have no pupils. Your reputation, Namor, seems overstated. You do not appear the sport I was seeking. But perhaps you may yet have some value. Leave now, he said. I will not ask again. Namor's mouth moved into a sneer of rage. I cannot do that. Proxima shook her head and allowed a small, condescending smile. Lord Thanos has demanded certain things come to pass, and I owe my tithe, Prince. She looked around briefly and gestured with one arm. However, I will have mercy on you and leave what is left of your nation alive, if you can tell me where I can find the remaining infinity gem. Namor said nothing, but she could see him weighing her words. He was a strong man who had been humbled, but was he a wise ruler? Would he fight, or would he see to the safety of his people? He looked away, and she knew she had won. He was, in fact, a wise ruler, when he needed to be. Can you do that for me? Prince Namor, can you save what little remains of your Atlantis? Namor lowered his head. In Russia, the people surrendered quickly. The superheroes of the Kremlin were no longer united, and most of them could not be found. The government watched the powerful ships descend, and then did the only wise thing they could to survive. They surrendered. The damage to the nation was minimal. In Mexico City, almost a million people were destroyed before the rulers of the country even had a chance to surrender. In China, the war lasted for several hours. Numerous areas were devastated before the government conceded. When the ships arrived in Hong Kong soon thereafter, 
the rulers were quicker to concede. Kobe, Japan, already had suffered a massive interplanetary assault. The million-plus people who had been living in the area no longer existed. The Japanese prime minister sent a message of surrender before the first ship landed. Across the globe, the alien ships swarmed, forcing all nations to face the same dilemma. Fight or survive. Where there were superhumans, the resistance lasted longer. Where there were not, the governments were on their own. Some were wise enough to surrender early on. Many were not. The devastation was profound. We are winning, brother. In Wakanda, Queen Shuri chose to stand and fight. Her brother, T'Challa, fought beside her. They both wore the ceremonial garb of the Black Panther. The ships that came for Wakanda learned very quickly that the country had far better defenses than most, already bolstered in anticipation of the inevitable war with Atlantis. A few of the alien vessels got through before the vast golden shield was raised to defend the air. Those that failed to get past the barrier quickly discovered that their weapons weren't enough to penetrate it. Those that did make it past the shield landed quickly and released shock troops that proved capable of leveling buildings with ease. Even so, Wakanda's internal defenses kept the capital city safe from the worst of the barrages, and the soldiers of Wakanda met their enemies with powerful retaliation. The closest of the ships released more troops, and one mountainous creature. It was the size of the Hulk, perhaps even larger, and possessed scaly golden skin that looked almost as tough as its armor. As it came closer, the thing spoke. I see that not all on this world are weak. Men die and the fields are burning, just as Lord Thanos intended. Its arms were long enough to remind them of the great white gorillas in the north. I am Black Dwarf. I seek the gem and the one who holds it. He looked directly at T'Challa as he spoke, and the once king felt a dread creep through him. Is there a great warrior here who would face me, or do I have to hunt you down? I am the one you seek, T'Challa said without hesitation. He fought his way through the newcomer's savage retinue, scattering them one at a time, making it seem effortless. I am the Black Panther, king of the dead, and soon to be your new lord. When he reached for Black Dwarf, the giant swung a massive arm and tried to hit him. He missed, but his fist shattered the earth where it made contact. As it was, the panther was knocked into the air by the force of the impact, and the blow likely would have destroyed him. Around them, the Wakandans and Shuri continued the fight, repelling the invaders. All knew, however, that the outcome rested on the two key combatants. T'Challa alone faced the massive leader. Quickly now, Reed. Stark said as he sped back into the command center. I'm spinning the arc reactor that powers the tower's new defense system, but we're going to have a small window in which to act. Outside, the enemy barrage had begun, littering the skies with explosions, shattering walls and windows around them. Though Avengers Tower had not yet been struck, the building shook from the assault. Small window, indeed. I counted more than fifty vessels, Richards replied, stretching to reach a control panel. We'll have maybe sixty seconds before they triangulate on the tower and... We become the focus of their attention. System activated. Iron Man tapped a series of holographic controls that hung in the air in front of him. Bringing the batteries online, the first impact struck and was repelled. The defenses held. I've got a green light on the second station, Richards confirmed. What now? What do you think, Reed? Stark hit the command button. Fire! Missiles launched from the tower's defense batteries. The weapons smashed into the vast ships with so much force that the vessels were pulverized. This kept devastatingly large chunks of debris from plummeting down on the streets and buildings. As it was, the damage was far from acceptable. Kill radius looks to be approximately one mile, Stark said. Effective, but we've got their attention now as well. The entire wing is vectoring on our position. Fifteen seconds out. Good, Richards responded. All eyes are upon us. If we're lucky... We'll buy everyone else more time. To the north of Manhattan in the city proper, a group of ships converged on a location in Westchester County, seeking another individual who might well hold the gem. At the Jean Grey School for Gifted Youngsters, the mutants known as the X-Men, including the recently returned Wolverine, fought to defend their own headquarters. The alien aggressors had anticipated strong resistance and were prepared for it. 
They were led by Corvus Glaive and the towering blue-skinned female Omnipath called Supergiant. Forward! Glaive bellowed, gesturing with a blade capable of cutting on the atomic scale. Find the stone! Find the one who holds it! As the defenders piled out of the school and approached, he added, Look, Supergiant, heavy game. Father, the giantess replied as she scanned their minds. An eternal man, an elemental, some minor players with mental acuity. No, the only real danger is the Omega-level mutates. She waved one black-clad hand. I will take the mind of the Megamorph now and make it my own. Iceman let out a scream of agony. There. Much better. Useful. Abruptly, the X-Men were engulfed in a glacier. Those who slipped past the assault were taken down by invaders with a wide variety of weapons. Wolverine was speared and lifted into the air, his blood spraying everywhere. Bravado is good, Corvus Glaive said. All great warriors are mocked by it, and then one day it puts them into their graves. He thrust downward, pinning his victim to the ground. This is that day, mutant. In a matter of moments, the mutants were defeated. In Manhattan's Greenwich Village, a single ship dropped down, landing gently on Bleecker Street. It was a smaller vessel and only carried one occupant. He was called the Ebony Maw, and he had exactly one goal, to find the Earth's Sorcerer Supreme and wrest information from the man who claimed to be a master of the mystic arts. The alien made his way past wards created to resist any assault, as if they were empty air. Upon entering his target's lair, he found only one ineffectual defender and quickly bound him. In the center of the sanctum, he located... Dr. Strange, floating cross-legged above the floor and unaware of the intruder. Ebony Maw stared at the man and smiled gently. Everyone has limits. He spoke softly as his hands caressed the physical form of the Sorcerer Supreme, an end to what they are. Around them, eldritch energies swirled. I, for instance, operate in information gathering. I gain influence— I see discord. I can use these tools in many ways. I cannot, however, merely tear into a man's mind and simply take what is there. Instead, I must use my words to see what makes a man strong or humbles him. I have to rely only on my words, but, oh, what words they are. Sweet whispers of secret fears. He spoke and there was an influence that wormed its way through Strange's defenses. There was a rhythm to the words, a power to them that could not be denied. As Ebony Maw tilted back the sorcerer's head, Strange seemed to become aware for the first time that he was under assault. Oh, Ebony Maw smiled. Go on, Doctor. Tell the Ebony Maw all the mysteries you have hidden in your head. I don't know. Strange said, I don't know where the gem is hidden. Wide, glowing eyes examined the man's face. The ebony maw tightened his grip. Curse the gem, doctor, he hissed. A fool's quest if ever there was one. I seek different information. I want what Thanos truly wants. He leaned in closer and spoke softly. Where is the boy? Dr. Strange fought not to answer. Victory, brother! Look at how they run! Queen Shuri said with enthusiasm. When will the world learn that Wakanda is no easy meal? Not the world. At least not this time, T'Challa mused, but he did not argue the point. The forces of Thanos retreated from Wakanda. The black dwarf stalked back to his ship, his head held low, and his warriors went with him. Around the panthers, the Dora Malaje cheered, raising their spears and modern weapons alike. We were fortunate, my queen, T'Challa said, standing at her side. Much more fighting with that monster, and he might have beaten me. As it is, I think my hand is broken. But it was worth it. 
she replied. It always is when you see your enemies fleeing from you. The alien vessels lifted off and quickly receded in the sky. They weren't expecting this sort of resistance, Cherie, he countered. If they had been, they would have brought a bigger army. You heard him. He was looking for something. Best that we prepare for their return. Shuri harumphed. I know nothing of a gem, T'Challa, but don't doubt the lesson of the whip, brother. We beat them badly, and defeat is the oldest form of education. What reason would they have to return? He considered telling her about the Illuminati and the Infinity Gems. T'Challa loved his sister, but felt it best if she did not know about the burden of power that existed on that level. The Infinity Gems were destroyed. That was enough. For now. Proxima Midnight looked down at Namor and repressed a desire to smile. He bowed before her, and so too did several of the other Atlanteans capable of fighting back. You have taken a knee, the victor said. You have surrendered, and so Atlantis is spared. I have accepted your allegiance in exchange for what you have promised. Are we agreed? My liege, you cannot do this. One of the blue-skinned women who bowed beside the prince looked toward Namor and spoke in a tongue Proxima could not understand. While there is one Atlantean who would fight back, we must— He did not even look at her as he replied. Be silent, Andromeda. His voice was heavy with regret, but he did not stop. It is done, Proxima. You have my word. Excellent, she replied. And now she did smile. Now, where is the gem? She leaned closer. Where do I send all the armies of my lord Thanos? Namer did not smile. A place called Wakanda, he replied. You seek a man called the Black Panther. Adelan floated above New York and above the battle for the world. The forces that descended did not attack the floating city. The barrier around the place might well have been all the deterrent they needed, or perhaps the invading armies simply believed that what they sought was not there. Maximus strutted through the king's throne room and smiled. There were times when Black Bolt felt a cold hatred toward the man, no matter how much he loved his brother. The human world was falling. Their governments were failing. The forces attacking the world were familiar enough. These were the followers of Thanos, and he knew what they did not. That they had reason to seek the Inhumans among the humans in the world. Those reasons, however, could not be tolerated. The world is on fire, Black Bolt, Maximus said. Tick-tock. One more small step, and it's off the ledge we go. Just one... Small step. He could not ignore Maximus's words. Much as he wanted to, the man was right. Black Bolt nodded, just to shut his brother up. But the gesture only made the madman more eager to speak, and to gloat. He so loved it when he was right. Time to speak, as it were, brother. Maximus continued. Time for secrets to be revealed to your secret society. To let them know why all of this is happening. Time to use the machine, and time for plans within greater plans to be set in motion. Black Bolt held up his hand and slowly made a fist. It was a simple thing to contact the others. Technological wonders were nearly commonplace among them, and even if they weren't, the Sorcerer Supreme would have come up with something. The boy would need to be protected. None of his people could be harmed, not if he were true to his nature as a king. Still, Sometimes a king must share secrets, and this one had already been stolen from his sleeping mind. A secret no more, then. It was time. He opened the fist and tapped the palm. With a tink, a light appeared in his hand. He held it up for Maximus to see. Oh, brother, the madman said. This is going to be so much fun. He was gloating. Black Bolt hated that tone in his brother's voice. Chapter 13 As the World Burns
Nomad was a relatively useless planet, stuck in a solar system of remarkably little note. At least that was how Clert saw it, yet it was the location of the Citadel of the Galactic Council. It was neutral territory, where all could meet on equal footing. At least that was what the Shi'ar claimed. In the last two days, Warlord Clert had managed the impossible. He had unified the warring factions of the once great Skrull Empire. He did not rule over them, but for the moment they would listen to him. There was a greater enemy to face, an army that had already slaughtered over two hundred billion scrolls. The outpost Hyalt Minor had been destroyed only a day before. That had been the tipping point. Finally, the other scroll warlords listened when he spoke. For the moment, their differences were deemed insignificant. They needed a leader, and Clert won by dint of his extraordinary abilities. Among the scrolls, he was a warrior of great renown, who from time to time brought shame to his people, and at other times inspired great glory. Among the people of Earth, where he had spent far too much of his time, and where he had been humiliated more than once, he was called the Super-Skrull. As a race, the Skrulls possessed inherent shape-shifting talents. This enabled them to infiltrate civilizations entirely undetected, and inspired a great deal of paranoia among those populations. The first time the humans on Earth repelled a Skrull contingent, they were led by the superhuman team known as the Fantastic Four. In an effort to make certain that never happened again, Clert was granted the same powers as all four members of that team. He was powerful indeed, and he used those powers to attain a position of leadership, Someone warred with his people, and he would not leave control of the Skrull Empire in the hands of a lesser warrior. When he landed on Nomad, Clert was accompanied by a faction of warlords who came to represent the fractured empire. The gray-skinned creature that met them was diminutive, but no one among the Skrull took that as a sign of weakness. Shape-changers could not be fooled by appearance. He explained their reason for coming, and the creature moved ahead of them, leading the way to the War Council's chambers. The Warlord Clert, representing the various factions of the Skrull territories, formally asks for admittance to this Council of War. The gray-skinned speaker gestured toward him. As it did, Clert looked over the gathering and nodded his approval. If they would organize a force that would oppose a galactic invader, these were the peoples who needed to be there. I was under the impression that a state of civil war existed among the different factions of your people, Warlord Clert. The man who spoke was the leader of the Shi'ar. He went by a dozen different names, but most people knew him as the Gladiator. He was easily one of the most physically powerful beings in the galaxy. He was also, as far as Clert was concerned, the best leader the Shi'ar had been granted in decades. Have they truly unified under your rule? Gladiator continued. Do you claim to represent them all? The Skrull Warlord nodded. I represent all but Warlord Demir. He sacrificed himself and many of his people in enabling us to reach you. Jassan, the pink-skinned king of Spartax, stood and moved forward. He was a well-respected leader. Spartax was more peaceful-minded than many of the Shi'ar cultures, but they did not hide when combat became a necessity. It's enough for me, Jassan said. We need swords, we need blades, sharp ones, thirsty for builder blood, and I welcome you as an equal. Sit, join this council. If you will fight, I will vouch for you. Though not overly fond of diplomacy, Clert nodded and took a seat next to a creature called Annihilus. They had fought against each other only a few months earlier, and now the loathsome insectoid was a welcome member of the War Council. How desperate we must all be, Clerk thought, but he kept his tongue. Thank you, King Jason of Spartax, he said aloud. The Spartax Empire is led by a practical man, always an asset in times of war. He could feel Annihilus watching him as he spoke. The Kree's supreme intelligence was present via holographic projection. 
an organic supercomputer holding the sum total of the Empire's knowledge. It was accompanied in the flesh by Ronan the Accuser, their primary enforcer of the law. When the intelligence spoke, it was all Clert could do to avoid sneering. The Kree were the Skrull's eternal enemies. The war between the two species ran back for thousands of years. Now, for the present, they too were allies. Swords are needed indeed, the intelligence said. As our ships, as our soldiers, which we Kree count in the tens of millions. And is there any fighting force in the universe more elite than Ronin? and his accuser corps. Ronan stood before the holographic image and stared straight ahead with the sort of military discipline the scrolls had always admired, even when they fought against the blue-skinned bastards. If old grudges were enough to stop the Alliance, however, he'd have killed every last person in the room, excluding perhaps only Chassan. Gladiator leaned forward, and looked toward the Supreme Intelligence's visage. The creature could not be present. It could not be moved from Hala, the homeworld of the Kree. Its massive form was the culmination of hundreds of generations of history and artificial intelligence combined. The Kree chose to be ruled by the memories of the past. They chose to let a machine think for them. They were fools, but they were fools with a massive army. Gladiator spoke. Yes, and I am here on behalf of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. Yet why only speak of them when there are so many other worthy warriors who have joined our cause? He gestured toward a creature that seemed as much insectoid as reptile, with a narrow form and too many teeth and claws for anything but a nightmare. The living army of the brood, for example, grows more formidable with each passing year. He indicated Annihilus in his exoskeletal armor. We have all seen what havoc the annihilation wave of the negative zone can cause when unleashed. Then he pointed again to a contingent that had come from the Earth, the group known as the Avengers. Once again, Clert managed to refrain from sneering. They were allies for now. To say nothing of the hundreds of thousands of planets gathered together with armies of differing sizes, here to represent their interests as well as our own. We are united, all of us, to oppose a threat that is truly universal in scope. These builders must be stopped before they destroy all of our planets, all of our lives. There were nods and mutterings of agreement, and if any disagreed, they kept their silence. Stepping to the center of the assemblage, Clert revealed a hologram of his own. This is footage of our encounter with the builders, he said. As you can see, Warlord Demir was able to wipe out the advance fleet by catching them in the blast radius of an exploding sun. One-eyed Demir had indeed lured the enemy close, shedding his own blood to distract them. Without a moment's hesitation, he incinerated them, along with his own forces. Truly, he had been a warrior among warriors. The majority of these bastards are still out of our reach, and coming this way, Clert said grimly. But they can be beaten. They can be killed. Yes, but you surprised them, Jassan responded. Projections of all available intelligence suggest a low probability of success if we have a head-to-head -head encounter. He pulled at the tip of his beard. What we need is another trap. Yes, the supreme intelligence responded. There is a location accessing intelligence archives. The Kondar encounter from one of the Kree-Shiar conflicts. The location lies in the projected path of the Builder Fleet. Ronan, the accuser, said. The man was a behemoth, massive even by Cree standards. His blue skin was dark, his eyes were lighter, and the armor he wore was far from ceremonial. It bore the scars of hundreds of conflicts. He looked toward the leader of the Shi'ar Empire. Magistor Gladiator, 
Do you remember this battle? Gladiator peered at the man who had led armies against his people. I do. The corridor. What is this corridor? Clert didn't like being left in the dark. Gladiator turned to look his way. There is a gravitational singularity and a pair of massive asteroid belts. The gravity waves, the electromagnetic fluctuations, and the density of the belt make it hard for anyone to see what is waiting just ahead of them. Clert understood. A trap, indeed. Chapter 14 Faint, Perry, and Lunch I hate waiting. Bruce Banner spoke mostly to make conversation. They'd been in the same location, hidden against the side of an asteroid, and in a low-power mode, for more than five hours. The Builder Armada, or at least one branch of it, was heading directly for them. I suppose they might have left me behind, he thought without saying it. After his most recent hulk-out, he'd awakened in a shield containment unit, naked and alone. That they trusted him enough to bring him along was a testament to how badly they needed all their heavy hitters. He still questioned the logic of the decision. The view was spectacular. In the distance, a great black orb pulled in the energies and... In the distance, a great black orb pulled in the energies and gases and matter from this universe and swallowed it hungrily. Vast swirls of cosmic debris and thousands of chunks of rock from the asteroid belt were waiting their turn to be consumed. It was the sort of image that most people from Earth would only ever see rendered in CGI. The power of the view was not lost on the scientist. The corridor was a debris-free pathway between the remains of two shattered planets. The Quinn cruiser hid in one of the asteroid fields, along with many ships of the Allied fleet. Many more waited in the asteroid belt on the other side. Steve Rogers was dressed in his full Captain America regalia, augmented by an armored environmental spacesuit and helmet, as with all of the people on the ship. Well, Bruce, I promise you that the fight will be here soon enough, and you'll wish you were still waiting. Sometimes the man took everything too literally. Then again, given Banner's tendency to change into a thousand pounds of gamma-fueled rage monster... Keeping him calm was a good idea. Shang-Chi sat next to Captain America. Expectation of disaster is a poor way to plan for success, Captain. Not at all. Cap shook his head. Preparation for the potential is an important part of any planning. Bruce agreed. Shang, the plan is to let the enemy fleet maneuver themselves between us and the black hole, he said. By giving them no place to run, we essentially force them to fight back, probably to the death. Today's combat forecast is sketchy at best, with a better-than-good chance of calamity. Shang-Chi looked over his shoulder. It is your optimism that I admire most, he said. Bruce was pretty sure that was meant as a joke, and started to say as much. Shang-Chi motioned for silence. Just got the heads up, he announced. We are ready to engage the enemy. Cap nodded. Quinn Cruiser 2, he said into the comm. Carol, did you pick that up? Got it. Fleet's entered the kill zone. Captain Marvel answered, her voice remarkably calm. We're just waiting for the signal. Everyone get ready. Bruce took a few deep breaths to make sure he stayed calm as well. Everyone meant the folks aboard the Quinn Cruiser and other spacecraft, as well as those who didn't need them for combat in airless space. The Hulk could withstand terrifying amounts of physical damage, but he still needed to breathe. Hyperion and several others did not. Falcon, who was as susceptible to the vacuum of space as Banner was, wore a specially developed suit that allowed him his full flight capabilities in the void. Just outside of the asteroid field, he could see motion as the enemy's ships came within visual range. Then, off to the right, starboard, Banner supposed, there was a bright flash launched as planned by Commander Jor of the Kree forces. There's a signal, Cap said. Let's go. Suddenly, the asteroid field was abuzz with activity as stationary spacecraft burst into motion. 
All of them had the same target. The Builder Fleet, the center of which had reached the planned coordinates. Flashes appeared, a few at first, then a multitude. In an instant, chaos erupted, and everywhere they looked, their field of vision was filled with combat. Their ship shook alarmingly as they took a hit, then another, but the shields held. Heavy fire from both sides, Captain. Shang-Chi spoke with amazing calm. Bruce could feel his heart hammering and forced himself to relax as much as possible. A vessel exploded nearby, and the white-hot flash left a momentary imprint on his vision. That faded as shards of the doomed craft flew past their viewport. Another vessel shot into the gap, its weapons blazing. The smaller figures of individual combatants dodged and wove around and sometimes threw the warships. I-beams flashed, piercing combatant ships with needle-like accuracy. Keep pushing, Cap said. The plan is to split their fleet, if possible. The command vessels will let us know if Allied Armada. Ronin, the accuser's voice, came through the comlink. Based on the movement of the ships within the Builder fleet, the Supremor has calculated a 90% chance that the command vessel is at the coordinates we are sending you. Retask all operations. Reprioritize your objectives. Destroy that vessel. In the live video feed, the flashes of contact continued throughout the conflict, but a greater concentration appeared in one particular location, the coordinates Ronin had supplied. Banner saw Thor and Hyperion, and a dozen alien lifeforms he'd never met before, turn and head for the ship being targeted. Hyperion hit it first. He was little more than a speck in the distance, but he moved through the void of space at a speed the naked eye could barely follow. He struck the front of the command vessel, leaving a hole the size of a transit bus. It couldn't have been two seconds later that he exploded out of the rear of the ship, taking massive sections of the interior with him. By the time he'd finished his run, several destroyer-class vessels in multiple small forms had cut loose with attacks of their own. Thor's lightning arced through space and hit the ship in a dozen places, each blast melting metal and blackening the hull. Smasher employed beams that cut from her goggles and ripped a line along the hull, easily shattering the ship's defensive shields. Several others followed after her, members of the Imperial Guard who worked with her in a flawless example of teamwork. It only took seconds for the powerful attack to destroy the command vessel. It went up in a burst of flames that were quickly smothered by the vacuum of space. Cheers came over the comms from a dozen ships. Bruce felt a grim smile coming on. If this was the best the enemy could do, they'd win this conflict easily. And his other would never have to come out and play cleanup. He preferred it that way. His smile vanished when the rest of the ships dropped their cloaks. Mother of God. Adrenaline kicked in, and he forced himself to calm down. There were so many ships, so many more than they'd expected or believed possible, and these vessels were massive, dwarfing the vast majority of the ships in their fleet. Like fish in a barrel. Bruce was unaware he was speaking. It wasn't a compliment, merely an observation. His stomach seethed with nervous energy. There was nothing good about the situation. Peace. Bruce wanted peace. Even when he'd created the first gamma bomb, the plan was to use it to stop people from attempting another war. The void of space shifted. The stars, the great vista of the event horizon, the asteroids, all disappeared, suddenly lost behind the vast ships that manifested from nowhere as if pulled from a magician's hat. Even as the builder ships seemed to pop out of nowhere, they opened fire, attacking every enemy vessel they could put in their sights, firing volleys of weapons that would have shamed any military he'd ever known. Streaks of light, massive explosions, balls of energy and fire bloomed along the sides of allied ships. People, oh so many people, died in volley after volley of enemy fire. The heavens bled fire and the mortal remains of thousands. What had been cheering was replaced by the screams of the dying. Bruce swallowed hard and forced himself to take deep breaths. Still his blood sang in his body and the world threatened to take on a green tinge he knew all too well. Over the comlink, the supreme intelligence of the Cree spoke. Probability of survival approaching zero if you do not withdraw from this theater. Close to 33% of the fleet has been lost or severely damaged in less than a minute. Sound the retreat! Now! 
Ronan's voice was calm, but loud. Run! As he spoke, the Kree ships began to veer away. The scrolls followed seconds later, and the Shi'ar called for a tactical withdrawal. Amid a continuous series of explosions, the Allied fleet broke apart and scattered. Hundreds of ships retreated, even as dozens were destroyed. The builders continued firing. Bruce took in great gasps of air and closed his eyes, focusing on staying calm. Several impacts struck near the Quinn cruiser, which shivered and shuddered as pieces of debris crashed into shields and then into the body of the ship itself. Stark built amazing weapons and armor, but everything had its limits. Bruce's heart sang and screamed. It was becoming a given that he'd be changing. When hurled into the vacuum, would the helmet expand enough to protect him? Or would this be the thing that finally ended his nightmarish dual existence? We're fine, Bruce, Cap said. Deep breaths. Nothing to worry about. Steve's voice was calming, despite the situation. True to his word, the shields held. Cap spoke into the comm. Carol, we've taken several hits, but we're still intact. Not sure if we can get clear unaided without Manifold jumping us straight to the rendezvous site. He paused, then added. Can you get clear? We're fine, Cap. I'm a better pilot than you on my worst day. That was true enough. She was a trained fighter pilot, whereas Cap had learned on the job as a member of the Avengers and had substantially fewer flight hours logged. We've got full power and we're flying free, but the fight took us closer to the singularity than I'd like. Jump. We'll catch up. Shang-Chi looked at the readings. We might not make it without an assist, Captain. Cap looked aft. Okay, Eden, you're on. Get us out of here. From the back of the ship, Eden called out. I'm working on it. Grab any friendlies you can. That's if you have to ask. Even as he spoke, Bruce saw Hyperion vanish from the vacuum, followed by Thor and several others he could not recognize amid the chaos. The Shi'ar cruiser began to give off spikes of energy. Before anyone could react, the vessel burst in a ball of fire. Captain Marvel's Quinn cruiser was caught in the blast. Then the cruiser, in which they flew, was elsewhere. In an instant, they were back at the Nomad station. Eden had taken them to a location he knew. Captain America turned in his seat and looked toward Banner. The thin scientist had a death grip on the armrests of his seat. His breathing was hard, but steady. There was a tinge of green to his skin that had nothing to do with nature, but it was fading away. We lost them, Cap. Bruce spoke, calmly, considering the circumstances. Captain Marvel, Hawkeye, Cannonball, Sunspot, I don't know who else. Cap frowned. Captain Universe, still in a coma, Abyss, Nightmask, Starbrand. So many who might be dead. But he couldn't simply accept that. That's all of them. And don't expect that they're dead. They've been through worse. Cheng Chi spoke softly. Perhaps not in the void of space. Not until I see a body. Cap countered. Only then do I consider death as an option. I learned that the hard way, Shang. The man nodded his head and said nothing more. Steve Rogers remained silent in his seat for what seemed like an eternity, but likely had been only a few hours. He'd seen potential flaws in the plan from the beginning, but had never expected anything on the scale of the ruse they'd just encountered. He'd never expected a fleet that size. It was unsettling. He looked to Banner again and saw that the man had calmed himself. All traces of green were gone. For that, he was grateful. Spider-Woman walked calmly from the back of the cruiser. Where are we headed? She was holding herself together remarkably well. Cap was impressed. Jessica Drew had spent a long time as a prisoner of the Skrulls, and he knew working with them now had to be eating at her. He had been in a similar situation, replaced by a Skrull doppelganger and kept prisoner, but for a much shorter time than she had experienced. We are to head for the Shi'ar agricultural world of Wan Prime, Shang-Chi said. We'll meet with the rest of the fleet. The natives have been told to be prepared to handle the massive injuries and casualties we have accrued. <laughs>